0: Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang-bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 11. Winnie Winnie decided Reardon was right about one thing. It hadn't been the best idea in the world to watch the proceedings at the house, especially from the sidewalk across the street. She heard the scuff of shoe leather on pavement and turned to find a police officer coming up behind them with a flashlight. He had the burly but corpulent look of a college football player gone to seed. Good evening, folks. Are you from the neighborhood? Yes, from nearby, said Winnie, trying her damnedest to sound nonchalant and credible at the same time. May I ask what you're doing? My dad and I were out for a walk when we saw the police cars go by. We were curious, so we came up to see what was happening. Reardon had turned to greet the officer with a friendly look on his face but she saw his jaw clench when she dropped the D word. Did you see anyone else while you were out? No, said Reardon. We've been all by our lonesome. What's going on? Domestic dispute? I can't discuss it, sir. The cop took a half-step back and pointed down the sidewalk with his flashlight. If you don't mind, I'll ask you to detour around the block. We need to keep the area clear. Reardon shrugged and stepped around the patrolman. Winnie followed, and they walked in silence past Reardon's old car all the way to the end of the block, where they turned right onto a busier street. When they were well out of range, Reardon wheeled on her. Your dad, he demanded. How did you come up with that one? She grinned at him. It was so easy to push his buttons. Nothing else is credible. A hot twenty something like me. Out with an old fifty-something like you. What else could I say? What else could I say, he mimicked her. Not trophy wife, because you're no trophy. Ouch. And FYI, I'm only fifty-two. I was just winding you up. I'm actually thirty-two. All right. You see what the up-close and personal view cost us. Now we've got to wait until they leave to retrieve the car. Relax. There can't be much left for them to do. Let's walk to the next light and turn around. I bet they'll be gone by the time we get back. Reardon grunted. Cars surged past them in the darkness. A mourning dove cooed on a wire above. The smell of creosote wafted from the bushes that grew in the no-man's land between the sidewalk and the high cinder block walls of the properties that lined the road. They walked to the stoplight, and Reardon made a point of tagging it ceremoniously before starting back. Hope you're enjoying your little tour of Palm Springs, he said. Something that had been bothering Winnie pushed to the front of her consciousness. You never said why you came. Where? To here. Palm Springs. No, I never did. It probably saved your life. If the winemaker had found you in San Francisco as easily as I found your old office, he would have killed you. I'm not sure I would have cared. She glanced over at him, trying to gauge his seriousness. What's that supposed to mean? It means what it means. When I left the city, I was at an all-time low. Why? He shook his head. Next topic. All right, but why come here? A silly reason. Although I never knew him, my father lived here. In the trailer I'm in now, he was a friend of Ray's. She laughed. What's funny? I was just thinking that Ray is the father you never had. Now you've crossed the line. Reardon reached over to tweak the tip of her nose. And yes, I got you there so you'd feel it, duly noted. But while you were abusing crippled girls half your age, a cop car pulled out of our street. I bet the coast is clear. Let's hoof it, then. They hurried back to the police chief's street. It was dark and quiet, and all the patrol cars appeared to be gone. Nuts, said Reardon. They towed the van. Does that surprise you? No, he said, holding open the passenger door of his Ford for her. Not really, but I'd hoped we'd have a crack at it. A waste of time, she said after he got in beside her. Nothing for us except another duffel bag full of guns and drugs. Maybe, but that just leaves the hotel. The painted sands, you said? She nodded. Rooms 103 and 104. I just hope they're not. Yeah, yeah, don't say it. A waste of time, too. They drove to the motel and parked in a spot between the two rooms. Reardon got out and hurried around to the trunk, where he retrieved a flexible metal rod with several sharp bends in it. A thin cord dangled from one end. What in the hell is that? she asked. Our door key. I thought you said you had lock picks. I do, but they're no good on hotel locks that use magnetic swipe cards. She frowned. You mean we're dependent on your ability to open doors with that? It looks like something you'd order on late night TV. He came up to her. Look, I'm a private detective. I break into hotel rooms all the time. This looks goofy, but it works. You slip it under the door and maneuver it up to hook the door handle from inside, then pull. The door pops open. Now why don't you play lookout while I do the first one? He passed her one of the 9 millimeter automatics. Go, was all she said. He walked up to room 104 and knocked. When no one answered, he dropped to his knees and slipped a metal rod under the door. He twisted it with one hand while he tugged the cord with the other. She heard a faint clanging noise from inside, and seemingly without any further precipitating action, the door slid open. Reardon scrambled to his feet, pulling his luger from the small of his back as he rose. Come on, he urged. She darted past him into the room, flicking on the light as she passed. No one was in the bedroom, and when she checked the bathroom and the closet, she found them empty as well. Unfortunately, there didn't appear to be much in the way of luggage or computer equipment either, things that she and Reardon had hoped would provide clues to the winemaker's whereabouts. Reardon retrieved his gizmo from the door handle and pulled the door closed. Well, he asked. Good job on getting us in, but the pickings look slim. He shrugged. I'll take the bathroom if you want out here. Fine. Winnie started with the dresser opening the drawers from the bottom like a burglar to minimize shifting. Whoever had left his clothes in the room was neat and traveling light. She found two pairs of carefully folded underwear, two polo shirts, two pairs of socks, and a rolled-up web belt like you might wear with khaki pants. The closet netted the expected pants, a blue poplin dress shirt, and a navy blazer. There was also a pair of Nike running shoes, and a completely empty rollerboard. Winnie triple-checked the luggage for a tag or any sort of identification, but there was none. She was lifting the Gideon Bible out of an otherwise empty desk drawer when Reardon returned from the bathroom. Any luck? he asked. Nada. How about you? Apart from learning the guy uses minoxidil on a bald spot and wants softer stools, no. That's more than I needed to know. What do you think? Should we tear up the place looking for hidden stuff? We should go next door first. We can toss the rooms if it comes to it. But I'm a little worried about the cops paying a visit. Better to see what we can see quickly. Okay. Just let me get this vest off before we tackle the next room. I'm burning up. Winnie stripped off the windbreaker and tugged at Ray's RF shield. When it cleared her head, she found that she'd drawn the fabric of her T-shirt clear over her chest. Reardon stood rooted, leering at her breasts in her sports bra. She yanked her shirt down and waggled her finger at him. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Reardon reddened. Sorry, he mumbled. He jerked open the door and strode over to room 103, where he knelt once again with his gadget. If anything, he opened the door more quickly this time, and something of immediate interest appeared inside. A four-foot case with a hinged lid stood open in the middle of the room. Winnie reached to turn on the light, and Reardon gasped. What? I swear I saw something move inside, something like an arm. Winnie couldn't make herself be surprised. She knew that prosthetic limbs were a possibility. She raised her arm again, holding it above her head. An answering movement came from inside the case, an aluminum and gray plastic wrist and hand hovering above the edge. She balled her hand into a fist, and the metal hand followed her. She relaxed her fist and rifled her fingers. It mimicked her. A creepy game of Simon Says. Stop that, said Reardon, pushing her arm down so that the metal one disappeared. What is going on? It's a prosthetic. They have it paired to my transceiver. All my arm movements are played on it in stereo. She paused and then laughed. I guess my mention of droids was more appropriate than I realized. Enough with the droids. Reardon yanked the door closed and took a step forward to peer over the edge of the crate. What's the point? Why make a mechanical arm to copy your movements? And why bring it to Palm Springs? I can't say for sure, but I bet it's tied to the reason for wanting me alive. Our company was never able to replicate the success we had with my prototype device, and I wonder if the winemaker has run into similar roadblocks. Yeah, but what does that have to do with a mechanical arm? She blew air through her nose. He could be so single-minded. I said I don't really know. It might be something to do with testing out my transceiver if they managed to get hold of it. Okay, said Reardon. He peered further over the edge of the crate. I can see a big orange power button. Okay if I turn it off? Be my guest. He leaned down into the crate, but before he could put his fingers to the switch, She pantomimed, reaching up and grabbing his wrist. The prosthetic arm rose like an Indian cobra and made a clumsy pass at him. He yelped and danced out of the way. That's not funny, he said. Winnie snorted and came up to the crate. Holding her right arm still by her side, she leaned down with her left and flipped the switch. The prosthetic dropped. I guess they thought they were going to get some action tonight, or they wouldn't have powered it up. I guess. What are we going to do with it? Smash it or take it with us. But I'm hoping there's more of interest than this. We still need some clue about where the winemaker is holed up. Reardon nodded to the bathroom. I'll search the bathroom. You can have all the fake limbs you find out here. She started with the dresser like before. This guy was less prissy about his clothes, but he was traveling just as light. She pulled out a New York Fire Department shirt and held it up, angry. The asshole didn't deserve to wear this. Winnie, said Reardon, a strain in his voice. You better come back here. She threw down the shirt and stepped into the bathroom. Reardon was on his knees by the tub. He'd unrolled a small towel on the floor, revealing the surgical kit wrapped inside. Scalpels, gloves, bandages, needles, and syringes were all in the inventory. He was gripping a laminated card, making a face while he read it. She took hold of it and tugged. Nothing is going to shock me at this point, she said, when he resisted letting it go. It was a step-by-step surgery for dummies to remove the implants from the back of her neck. It went into gruesome detail about dealing with any scar tissue that might have formed around the devices, and it made clear that under no circumstances were the implants to be jeopardized for the patient's sake. It also described how the implants in the transceiver should be packed up for transport after they were harvested, and only then did it bother to give any suggestions about dressing wounds. She threw the card back down and brought her hand up to massage her temples. Thoughtful of the winemaker to laminate his instructions to avoid bloodstains, wasn't it? Reardon stood up beside her, looking distinctly unsettled. Yeah. What's wrong with you? I'm the one they were going to cut up. That doesn't make it any better, he snapped. Reardon paused. Torture or any kind of abuse of medical technology just freaks me out. They were silent for a moment, looking down at the glint of the scalpel under the bathroom light. It confirms why they were after me, she said finally, but it doesn't help with their location. We still don't have a fucking clue where they are. Reardon shook his head. He leaned down to take the towel by a corner, dumping all the surgical paraphernalia to the floor. He held it so she could see the words and logo embroidered along the bottom. The logo looked like a bit for a horse, and the words confirmed it. Bridal Bit Ranch. So, she said, it's a golf towel. Businesses give them out as promotional items. And I've got a pretty good idea where that business is. (laughs) You have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.